Romans 15 tonight is where we begin. And we have tried to call to you out of Romans every great truth, every principle, every word that we can handle. And we're now right headed toward the great conclusion of this wonderful book, which is the first church epistle addressed to the body in the Bible. And verse 1 of chapter 15 reads, We then that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak and not to please ourselves. This, again, deals with that same truth. It's the word of God in the renewed mind, in your life, in manifestation, without hypocrisy. And the word strong is mature. We then who are mature, and people, you'll always find some in the body more mature than others. It's just like children. If a little baby's born, that baby's not as mature as it will be at 16. And at 16, you will not be as mature as you may be at 30. So Christians are like this. They're born again of God's Spirit. They don't automatically mature overnight. So you and I who are more mature, we then that are mature, ought to bear the infirmities of the immature, weak is immature, and not just to do what? Please ourselves. When you're more mature, you don't get headstrong and egotistical. The more mature you are, the more humble you ought to be, the more loving, the more understanding, the more giving of yourself to bless others. You just do not put up with the immature, you know, what I mean by that, you just don't put up with them, but you actually bear them up. You lift them up. It reminds me of the statement in the epistles, you weep with those who weep, you laugh with those who laugh. You encourage them. You strengthen them. And you do this by teaching them more and loving them greatly. Those are the two things that we as mature believers have to do to the immature, less mature than we are. You teach them the word, show them more of the word, and then love them more. Now, this is why the immature believer needs to come to your twig meeting, and the twig has to be hot. The twig coordinator has to just be vivacious. So you have these immature believers coming and you teach them more of the word and you love them and keep building them up. That's verse 1 of Romans 15. We who are mature ought to bear the infirmities. The infirmities does not mean the sicknesses, but their weaknesses where they're not as strong as they ought to be. We bear those of the immature and we do not please ourselves. Verse 2, let every one of us mature, every one of us who are more mature, please his neighbor. Please his neighbor. Now this neighbor we're talking about is not the rank unbelieving neighbor, swears that God doesn't believe it. That's not, it's a believing neighbor, one who is born again of God's spirit, 
who is a believer. That's what it's talking about. A believing neighbor for his good to what? Edification. And you all know what that word edification means. Edify means to build up. You learned this early in the foundational class that we talk about an edifice. Edifice is a big building. It's built up. Now, every one of us is to please the believing neighbor to edification, building up. Well, that was already in the first verse, wasn't it? In the light of that. You see, in chapter 14, when we worked that, you had the same truth in verse 19 of chapter 14. Let us therefore follow after the things which make for what? Peace. The more mature believers follow after the things that make for peace and things wherewith one may edify another, build another up. Same word. That's verse 2. Verse 3. For even Christ, look at the illustration now. You couldn't go any higher than this. Even Christ pleased not himself. But as it is written, it is core, it is written, the reproaches of them that reproach thee fell on me. And this is a direct quote from Psalm 69, verse 9, out of the Septuagint. Christ pleased not himself. He always did the Father's will. And when I think of this verse 3 and read it in the light of Jesus Christ, how insignificant is the suffering that has caused me at any time in my life in comparison with the love and the suffering of Christ Jesus. We are never tempted beyond what we're able to bear. All that stuff flips up in my mind. All of our suffering, anything else that you and I may do in this life is relatively small compared with the love and the suffering of Christ. Christ pleased not himself. So if Christ did not please himself and he is my Lord and Savior and I work for him, then I do not please myself. I please God and in turn please God's people to bless God's people to build them up. That's verse 3. Verse 4. For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. There's one of the greats. They're all great, but this one is just fantastic because it is here in this verse that we get great learning regarding Old Testament and the Gospels. You see, the Gospels in every Bible are put in the New Testament, and that's awful. The Gospels are Old Testament. They should have been put in the Old Testament. But I doubt if all of our teaching is going to change it. They're not going to write new Bibles and print them, most likely because of us. But, boy, this is so tremendous. For whatsoever things were written aforetime, before the day of Pentecost, before the day of Pentecost, all of those things are written 
for our learning. They're not written to us. And boy, when I learned that, that everything before the day of Pentecost was for our learning, that just answered hundreds and hundreds of questions and, you know, released your mind because you couldn't help but think of the Beatitudes and all of those other things in the Gospels. And then you tried to harmonize it with things in the church epistles. You just couldn't do it. Things like the Lord's Prayer that he taught to his followers. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us as we forgive our debtors, remember? And yet, when you get to the church epistles, he'll supply our need according to his riches and glory. Don't pray for daily bread. He's already said he will supply it. So all you have to do is thank him for it. He doesn't forgive us in the epistles according to how we forgive. Once this verse became clear, and once it becomes clear to you, then you'll see how great the Old Testament is, but that it's not written to you, but it's for your what? And dang it, you can learn a lot from the Old Testament. You ought to learn. It doesn't say, from now on, don't ever read it. It says, for our what? Learning. Well, how are you going to learn it? Read it. Study it. To show yourself approved, rightly dividing it. Whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our what? Now watch this. That we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. This is real interesting because the critical Greek text has the article the in front of patience, in front of comfort, and in front of hope. And they didn't put it in the King James. He puts the emphasis there, written for our learning, that we, through patience and comfort, through the patience and the comfort that the Scripture gives, we might have the hope of Christ's return. That's the verse. Isn't that something? Written for our learning, for our learning that we through the patience, the patience of what? That we gain by the scriptures, Old Testament, for our what? For our patience, patience. Good Lord. That patience does not mean you never work at something. Patience means you believe God's word, and if you have to wait 120 years for it to come to pass, you still believe it. Would you say Noah had a little bit of patience? <laughs> he knew God's word. God's word was God's will. He didn't sit around till the day just before the flood and start building. He was out there working, and with patience, he just waited because he knew God's word said it's going to rain. And that must have really blown his mind. He didn't even know what rain was like. You understand patience here? And comfort, comfort, comfort. What gives a man comfort but the word? The word. That's what gives a man comfort. Comfort, quiet acquiescence. It's God's word. You just believe God's word and it gives you comfort. 
You don't bite your fingernails to the second knuckle. It gives us the comfort. And the scriptures giving us patience, comfort, might have the hope, the hope, the hope, the hope. The hope is the fulfillment of all scripture, which includes the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, wonderful. Boy, what a verse. Now, verse 5. I like this. <laughs> now, the God of patience and comfort. <laughs> he has to be to work with us. He's got to be a God of patience. And you can find plenty of scripture to document how patient he's been. When I think of God, his patience, understanding Genesis, the fall, waiting centuries upon centuries upon centuries till one woman came along named Mary who believed. All the rest of the women for all those centuries had the privilege, but they never believed. Mary came along and she was the one who said be it unto me according to thy word you talk patience you see God has to have patience because he does not possess he has to wait on the free will of a man or woman to believe boy what tremendous truth that's always the true God whenever people are possessed it's always the devil one way or the other. The true God never possesses. He gives the man a freedom, the freedom of the will like you had to confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, believe God raised him from the dead. He gave you freedom of will. God has patience and God has comfort. May now the God of patience and comfort grant you to be what? Like-minded, like-minded, on the patience, the comfort of the scripture that you might have hope. We are to be like-minded, to have patience and comfort one toward another, one toward another. The more mature, remember now, and the immature have a little what? Patience, a little comfort, edifying, toward one another according, according to, as Christ Jesus had. That's the text. According to Christ Jesus. Well, what did Christ Jesus do? He's our example. He was God's only begotten Son. Then you see the patience. You see the comfort that he had for people. Verse 6, that reason for that you may, that you may, as mature believers, with one mind, one mind, and one mouth, glorify God. That's the purpose. That we may with one mind, and if we all have the same mind, whenever we speak, we all got the same mouth. With one mind and one mouth, the one mouth would be like without any reservation. One mind. I do not know how to keep people in one mind if they do not will to be of one mind because they have freedom of what? 
But the word of God says that you are to be of one mind. So, if people don't want to be of one mind, I don't know what to do. You can try to get them to see the word. You can continue to love them. That's all I know. But the only way I know to be of one mind is just be obedient to words. We talk long enough till we get in one mind. This is why your twigs ought to be hot. That's where you can bring them into one mind with you. Word over the world is a reality to me. I can see it. If people would just believe God and each one win one, that's all you have to do. Each one just win one. Then those two each go out and win two more. Now we got four. Four go out and win four more. You get 16. 1632, 64, and 128. And then it really mounts up. There has to surely be somebody, someplace that you can win. The reason we don't is because we slough off. We're not of one mind. The Word is not a living reality to us. It's a fine book. We got a lot of satisfaction out of it. It's good for our head, but we're just not out there pushing. Suppose you witness to 100 people and they all tell you to go climb. So what? Noah stood 120 years. Boy, this thing, if it ever catches fire, they haven't seen anything till they see this thing. It would just solve thousands of problems everywhere if we just did it. Each one just win one, and then the two go out and win two more. You could change a country in no time. You can change a world. Because you can bring that remnant of believers out of every state, every nation throughout the world. And it's the remnant of believers that set the pace in a nation. Like-minded, one toward another, according to Christ Jesus. Even the Father, the Father of what? Our Lord Jesus Christ the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. If he's the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, then Jesus Christ can't be the Father. He fathered himself. Then you got your own grandpa. You're your own grandpa. There's a song like that, I'm my own grandpa. Ever hear it? Yeah, that's, that's an old song. Boy, oh boy, how they could have gotten so screwed up and taught all of us that Jesus Christ was God. I don't know, but he sure did. Really something. This is with one mind, one mouth, glorify God. And that one mind is to be in one accord with Jesus Christ, who is our brother. He's my brother. We're in one accord. Verse 7. Wherefore, receive ye one another. Receive ye one another. I don't know what that word receive is. Lambano? Deco. Is it Lambano? Wherefore, receive ye one another. As Christ also received. What's that? Lambano? You. Us is you in the text. Receive ye one another. As Christ also lambanoed you. 
to the glory of God. You see, Jesus Christ is the mediator for the unsaved sinner who desires to get saved. He's the mediator. One mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. Remember Timothy 2.5, isn't it? He's the mediator. He's the mediator. Jesus Christ is not your mediator because you are saved. You don't need the mediator. What you need is an advocate. Advocate. He's your defense attorney. That's First John. That's the difference between the mediator and Jesus Christ as the advocate. He is our advocate. But before we got saved, he was our what? Mediator. That's why receive ye one another as Christ also received you to the glory of God. In 14, we had this earlier, 14, verse 3, it says, last phrase, for God hath received him. You see that? God hath received him. This is the individual who eats or doesn't eat, both of them. Do not judge him that eateth, for God hath what? Received him. Here in verse 7, it says, Christ also received you. Here we're not dealing with the food situation. Here we're dealing with the one mind and Christ as our example, Christ our brother, wherefore receive ye one another. Christ is our brother, as Christ also received you. You are his brother, now you be brother to everyone else. You see it? To the glory of God. The reason I'm showing you that verse and explaining it to you, it's a verse that they use for the deity of Christ and has nothing to do with the deity. Christ also received you. They say because Christ received you, God received you, therefore Christ is God. Oh, good God, what a bunch of junk. But that's their logic. Well, they haven't got any. How can you have any logic unless you have an understanding of Scripture? Okay. <laughs> now we go to verse 8. Bless your heart. Boy, oh boy, here's another earth-shaking verse. <laughs> King James says, Now I say that Jesus Christ was a minister of the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm the promises made unto the fathers. I say, I say, these two words, I say, are used seven times in the book of Romans. You can look it up for yourself and see how important they are. They're words that Paul uses when he wants to emphasize, same as I sometimes say, look, listen to me. You say it, listen to me. You say the same thing to someone. Or you say to your child, Honey, listen to me. You, you use emphasis. That's what this is all about. And if you look them up sometime, you'll get great learning from the usages at the locations where they are used. This, now I say, opens with a now, 
I do not believe that that's accurate. The Greek words are lego, L-E-G-O, gar, G-A-R, and that's the text I follow, which means for I say, not now I say, but for I say, which ties it together with that which we have just discussed. For I say that Jesus Christ was a minister to the circumcision. Jesus Christ never came to start the church to which you and I belong, the church of the body. Jesus Christ was a minister to the circumcision. Circumcision is Israel. Boy, what a tremendous truth. He just came to Israel, came to redeem Israel. That was his purpose in coming. The primary desire of God was to have Israel to repent and turn to the true God. So he sent his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, as a minister to the circumcision, is the text. For what purpose? For the truth of God. To give the circumcision, Israel, the truth of God, or God's truth. See it? Give them God's truth. Then the next phrase, to confirm the promises made unto the fathers, giving them God's truth, which will establish the promises made to the fathers. Even before Israel came into being, for it was already back in Abraham. He was a minister to the circumcision for to give them God's truth, which would establish, confirm, establish the promises made unto the fathers, made unto the fathers, not only Jacob and then down, but all the way back to Abraham. And that, by the way, brings with it mercy to all, including the Gentiles. It was mercy to Israel and to the fathers, but also including the Gentiles. Now, this may not, what I've just said, may not sound of great importance to you because you haven't lived long enough and had to put the word together, but it's very important what I've just said. The whole Bollinger group, that whole school, teaches that the church did not start on the day of Pentecost, but with Acts 28. But I have handled this particular statement to show why it did start at Pentecost. But the thing that they hit, and they will hit, is that Jesus Christ was a minister to the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm the promises only to the fathers because the oracles were given to them and that no mercy was given to them. Mercy came only to the Gentiles because Israel had the oracles of God. I don't believe that. That's why I made the statement that I made. I'll share again what I've written down, which is absolutely what I believe is the truth of God's word. Jesus Christ was a minister to the circumcision. 
He knew, never knew anything about the church of the body to which you and I belong. And that again, if he were God, God knows everything, right? So he couldn't be what? Right. He didn't know. He was just a minister to the circumcision to give them God's truth, which will establish the promises made to the fathers even before Israel in Abraham. which also brings with it mercy to all, including the Gentiles. I think mercy was extended to Israel. I think mercy was extended to Abraham. I think mercy was extended to Gentiles also. Did you understand this even before Israel in Abraham? Because Abraham preceded Jacob, right? Abraham, and then Isaac, then Jacob. So he was already in the line, so to speak, in the bloodline, in the genetic offspring of Abraham, even as we are of Adam and Eve. You understand? Now, Boy, don't forget, a minister to the circumcision. Look at Matthew. Boy, this stuff is just so exciting to me and so alive and so beautifully simple. Matthew chapter 1. Jesus Christ, a minister to the circumcision, to Israel. Verse 1 says, the generation genetics of Jesus Christ, the genetics of Jesus Christ, God cannot be born. It's the genetics of Jesus Christ, right? Generation. He's the son of whom? David. I want to show you that he was a minister to the circumcision all the way through. Son of David, the son of whom? Abraham. Luke 3. Look at verse 23. And Jesus himself began to be about three, being as was the son of Joseph. Son of Joseph. 38. Tracing it all the way through. Son of whom? Adam, who was the what? Son of God. Adam was the son of God. Jesus Christ, God's only begotten son, came down through that line, but Adam was the son of God. Jesus Christ is the son of God. The wonderful truth. So as I said, it's already Israel in Abraham, and then you can take it all the way back to Adam, who is the son of God. In Acts, Acts 2, 29, Men and brethren, let me boldly speak unto you of the patriarch David. Spot the word patriarch. Patriarch David. A while ago we read that Jesus Christ came this route. Here he's called patriarch. The word patriarch means father. That's what it means. 
in the Eastern Church today, the head of the Eastern Church is called the Patriarch. That means Father. In the Western Church, he's called Pope. Pope is Papa, meaning Father. Patriarch, David, is the Father. Understand? In Hebrews, chapter 7 is an interesting verse that you must put with this. Chapter 7, verse 4. Now consider how great this man was, unto whom even the patriarch Abraham gave the tenth of the spoil. There Abraham is called the father, patriarch. In Luke chapter 1, verse 32, this is the angel, isn't Yes, angel said to Mary, talking about Jesus in verse 32, he shall be great and shall be called the son of the highest, and the Lord shall give unto him the throne of his father David not the church of the body, the throne of his father, patriarch David. Understand? And, verse 33, he shall reign over the house of Jacob, or Israel, forever. He is a minister to the circumcision. That's what I'm showing you. Even the angel said so. And of his kingdom, there shall be know what end. And in verse 55, remember in 46, Mary prophesies, magnifies the Lord, my spirit rejoice. Then, this is after she rides there, Elizabeth. Verse 55, as he spake to our fathers and to Abraham, to Abraham and to his seed, how long? forever. See? Now, to show you again what I said about mercy, not just to the Gentiles, but to all from the day of Adam on, verse 50 says this, and his mercy is on them that fear, that reverence him from generation to what? That means throughout all generations. That's how I know I'm right. The word says so. That's how you open people's understanding. The word. Kids, there's absolutely no hint regarding the church of the body to which you and I belong relative to Christ coming here upon earth. It's always to Israel, to redeem Israel, to bring it to pass. But God being God he knew in his foreknowledge that when he would send his only begotten son that they would kill him. There are parables like this. He sent, first he sent somebody and then he sent somebody that killed him and did something. And finally, the parable says he sent his own, his son to the vineyard or whatever it was. They killed him. God knew this about Jesus. So he knew this he raised him from the dead, had the ascension, 
all of that, nothing that the adversary could know. For had he known it, he would not have crucified the Lord of glory. See how all this fits together? Boy, what a tremendous record in Romans. A minister to the circumcision to confirm the promises, yes, but to carry it all the way through, showing the greatness of God's mercy. Boy, oh boy. Now, you know, just thought of this. Even the wise men, when they came to Jerusalem in chapter 2 of Matthew, they did not say, where is he born, head of the church of the body? <laughs> right? What did they say? 2-2, two, two, where is he that is born king of the Jews or Judeans? Boy, oh boy. Maybe something. Uh, verse 6 is thou Bethlehem you know <laughs> in the land of Judah are not the least among the princes for out of thee shall come a ruler shall rule what my people what that's plain enough isn't it going to rule the people of Israel in chapter 10 of Matthew listen to verse 5 where Jesus sends out, you know, the twelve. He says, verse 5, Go not into the way of what? And into any city of the Samaritans enter ye what? Verse 6, But go rather to the lost sheep of the house of what? See, his mission was to Israel, and when he commissioned the twelve as apostles, their mission was to what? See, it's all a minister to the circumcision. In chapter 15 of Matthew. Matthew 15. 24. The woman Canaan came out. Remember, have mercy on me, Lord. Now, 24. He answered and said, I am not sent, but unto the lost sheep of the house of what? Could you get anything plainer in words? That's right. Couldn't have it. Then in verse 26, he answered and said, It's not me to take the children's bread and to cast it to the Gentiles. Dog. Came to, the, to Israel and Israel only. Boy, back to Romans 15. Bless your heart. Romans 15, verse 8. For I say, he's putting emphasis there. I listen to me, people, he says. I'm saying to you, Jesus Christ was a minister to the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm promises made unto the Father. Very plain. Now we go to verse 9. And... Conjunction, tying together that which precedes with that which follows. And that the Gentiles might glorify God for mercy. As it is written, that's the second time in this chapter it is written, for this cause I will confess to thee among the Gentiles and sing unto thy name. 
Verse 10, And again he said, Rejoice, ye Gentiles, with his people. And again, Praise the Lord, all ye Gentiles, and laud him, all ye people. And again, Isaiah saith, or Isaiah, Isaiah is Isaiah, saith, There shall be a root of Ot, Jesse, and he shall rise to reign over the Gentiles. In him shall the Gentiles trust. The reason this root of Jesse, which was to Israel, would rise to reign over the Gentiles is because Israel did what? Rejected him. They killed him. God raised him from the dead. He ascended. Day of Pentecost came. And even on the day of Pentecost, it again came back in the temple to Israel. And they screwed it up again. Right. And it just started in where gradually now the people of Israel who believed would come out, Gentiles would come in, and the whole new administration called the Church of the Body of the born-again believers to which you and I still belong. That wonderful <laughs> makes me cry. Boy, oh boy, this is our God, His Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior. Yeah. Verse 9 is from Psalm 18, 49. It's just word for word from this psalm in the Septuagint. Remember the scripture written in the law, the psalm, the prophets? This close here, following upon minister of the circumcision, in this closing that whole thing out, you will have the law, the psalms, and the prophets in, in these verses. 9, 10, 11, and 12. 9 is from Psalm 18, 49. 10 is from Deuteronomy 32, 43, which is the law. Verse 11 is from Psalm 117, 1. I cannot prove that I have no text yet, but I believe that those two verses could be inverted. I believe verse 11 could be verse 10 and verse 10 could be 11. I have no text available currently to prove it. Because why would God's word break up law, the Psalms, the prophets? Why wouldn't he just put it logically in God's word? This is my only argument. Verse 12 is from Isaiah chapter 11, verse 10. And I want to look at Isaiah with you. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 10. And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse which shall stand for an ensign of the people. To it shall the Gentiles seek, and his rest shall be glorious. Verse 12, and he shall set up a what? An ensign for the nations and shall assemble the outcasts of Israel and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. In Romans that we read, that verse 
12, which is a quotation from this Isaiah chapter 11, verse 10, 11, 12. There's a verbal difference, but the sense is the same. The sense is the same. Every person to whom Paul addressed this and they read it, they would understand it. Takes the critics 2,000 years later who don't understand it because they don't want to understand it for the most part. There is a verbal difference. I know that. It says it's written, but it really, it is written, but the verbal difference is there, but the sense is the same. This enzyme in verse 10 is the word, Hebrew word, nes, N-E-S. It is that word which is used on the end of the word Jehovah as one of the seven redemptive names of Jehovah in Exodus 17:15, where it is Jehovah Nisi. And I S S I. Jehovah Nissi. Nissi is this enzyme, the word Ness. Jehovah, our banner, our canopy. Remember? Our ensign, our flag, we parade it around. We are Jesus, men and women, not homos. Jesus, men and women. See, Jesus, men and women. That's the banner. That's the ensign. That's the root out of Jesse, of Romans. The root of Jesse, the root of Jesse, stands as the ensign. Who is that? Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He's our banner. He's the one we promote. He's the one we flag all over the place. He is our canopy who covers us. And that indicates he is the head. Back to Romans for a moment. There shall be a root of Jesse, verse 12, and he shall rise. That's the enzyme. Stands as an enzyme. The root of Jesse stands as a banner, a canopy, a flag, which indicates he is the head, the leader. He's the flag carrier. He is the banner we follow. That's the root of Jesse. He's going to reign over the Gentiles, not irrespective of Israel, but they're no longer Israel and they're no longer Gentiles. For when we are born again, we're neither Jew nor what? But a new creation in Christ Jesus. In him shall the Gentiles trust. The word trust is hope. The hope, the hope, the hope. The return. I'd like to close tonight just reading verse 13. But in the light of what I've taught you tonight of the first 12 verses, we come to this great 13th verse. Now the God of hope, the God of the hope, fill you with all joy and peace in believing. Ladies and gentlemen, there is no joy and no peace without believing. 
joy and peace that you get when you do what? Believe, believe, believe. The joy and peace in believing, not in doubting, not in criticizing, not in raising hell, but the joy and peace in what? Believing that you may abound in the hope, that you may abound in the hope, the hope of Christ's return. You abound in it, abound in it. Young people don't abound in it because you think you're going to live forever. You're young, you know. You're only 18, 20, 25. You've never even thought about the end of life. You haven't even started living it, so I should think about the end of it. I know this from working with young people through years and years. The hope does not mean much to young people because you have not even considered that there's going to be an end to your life. But the Word of God says you ought to consider it. That doesn't make you get older faster. That just makes you smarter sooner. (laughs) (laughs) You may abound in hope. Abound in it. You know what abound means? It means abound. Not just dribble, but abound. Through, through, or by means of the power of the Holy Ghost. That you may abound in it. And in Acts chapter 1, Acts chapter 1, abound in that hope, verse 11, on the day of the ascension, which also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? Why do you want to build on the housetops and wait? Why do you stand here gazing? Why do you want to dig in someplace in a country somewhere and wait for the Holocaust, the return. Why? He said, why do you stand gazing? don't have to stand gazing. Get out there and work. Speak the word. Follow the manner. Hold it forth. Work. The same Jesus which is taken up from you into heaven shall so come in like manner, as ye have seen him go where? Right at the time of the ascension is the declaration of his return. The hope, the hope of Romans, okay? 